Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. You know, we've been in and out of this series on spiritual war, and we've been doing this since uh, sometime in November. And I think in the past six to nine months, the message that we have for today has, has been specifically talked about in one way or another. So it makes today a little challenging, but we've talked about the word often. So when I say the word, I, I mean the word of God. Now, this summer we, br we broke down how Jesus is the physical embodiment of God's word. It was established in John chapter 1. Jesus was the physical manifestation of God's word. And then we also talked about the importance of God's word and applying it to your life and knowing it. You guys have heard this. We have alluded to, but we have never dove into God's word as mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6. That this is the only weapon mentioned in our spiritual armor Every other piece is a defensive tool to protect us. But the word is described as the sword of the spirit. So it, it is a weapon. And we know that weapons can be used defensively, right? But weapons can also be brutal. Weapons can be very pointed. And so this metaphor that is used for God's word should give us an idea of what it can be used for, what it can do in our own lives. Something that was odd to me as I was thinking about this message today, last Sunday's message was on peace. And this week, I'm talking about a weapon that we hold, right? And yet, that peace, it talks about being full of the gospel, or that is the good news that brings peace to people's lives. But God's word is also, it is sharp, it is pointed, and it is a great weapon against the enemy. I want to read for you Ephesians 6, 12 through, 10 through 12, excuse me. It says, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. You know, um, today we're going to be speaking from the Gospel of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is about to begin his ministry. And before he begins, he is led, it describes him being led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. Whoever feels like they've been led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God before. Okay, so Jesus, before his ministry starts, he is led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. And then as he is in the wilderness, he, it, it becomes a testing ground before he faces the challenge of bringing his impact to the world. And so as he is in the wilderness, what happens is Satan comes in, and he comes against him in a time of weakness to try and tempt him. Think about Satan for just a moment. Do you realize he never targets an area of strength in your life? He is always going to target an area of weakness. So what we're going to do, we're going to read Matthew chapter 4 here, and I want you to think about these areas of weakness 
or potential weakness, because we know Jesus was without sin, areas of potential weakness that Satan tried to target in Jesus' life. Let's read Matthew 4, starting at verse 1. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit. Everyone say, by the Spirit. Into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. Say, by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the Scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, I want you to think about this as we're talking about the word today. Jesus just instructed him, you are to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's continue going. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil went away. And angels came and took care of Jesus. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for your word. And it even shows us that Jesus was tested in a time of weakness. And he overcame the enemy. And God, I pray that that be a great learning tool for us in how we might come against Satan when he tries to attack us. Father, give us wisdom and insight and strength in those times. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. I want to look real quick at the, the three areas Jesus was attacked. I want you to think about this. Jesus was hungry in his fasting, and Satan tempted him with food. Jesus was the Son of God. He has the power of God at his disposal, and so Satan tempts him to selfishly abuse that. And thirdly, Jesus, he, he, here he is going into the wilderness. He is striving for the kingdom of heaven, and Satan tempts him with the kingdoms of the earth. And notice that every time Satan tried to tempt him, what did he do? Satan manipulated Scripture. Did you see that? He manipulated Scripture, and Jesus, being the Son of God, being the very embodiment of the Word, knew how to exactly attack that because he knew that Satan was falsely using Scripture. I want you to think about that. Do you know there are false prophets and false teachers out there that they can manipulate this to try and bring your heart in rather than you using your head to confirm it with the word of God to make sure what they're saying lines up. You should be doing that with everyone who speaks, including me. You should not look at any speaker as the end-all, be-all, that this is the answer. You should look at it for yourself. 
And I think one of the most important things that we can do as believers, no matter where you are at in your faith, is you need to establish what the word is. you got to establish what it is. And I establish God's word as everything that is God-breathed or God-inspired. So I look at what comes out of the mouth of God as truth. And so if we refer to the Bible as God's word, we need to look at this as God-breathed, God-inspired, inerrant, which means flawless, it is perfect. There's 66 books contained in the Bible. These were approved by men that, that, that deemed it was God-inspired. And something that you might not know, it had to pass this test that they called canon. And it went through this rigorous test on deciding what measured up of all these writings we have. What measured up, what doesn't measure up to what we know about God. And something that I want to establish with you so you can understand how much we should value this because it has been put to the test is there are actually five tests every book that is in here went through to decide that it was worthy of canon. The first one was it went through a test of divine inspiration. They asked, does this book... uh, claim to be divinely inspired. And so then they'd read it and say, okay, the claim is there. Is it inspired? Do we see God in this? Is, Is God speaking this to us? The second test was of human authorship. They asked, is the book written by an accredited agent of God, i.e. a prophet or an apostle or someone who walked closely with Jesus? They asked, can the book be traced back to the time and or the writer from who it professes to have come from? The next test was the test of authenticity. Is the book factually true? They ask questions like, is it it noteworthy that Bible authors didn't just use false philosophical ideas or scientific opinions of their times? Does it stand the test of time? The fourth test was that of testimony. Was the book universally recognized by the Jews and or by the Christian church as being God's word? When we read it, does the Holy Spirit bear witness to the regenerated reader that the book is the Word of God? And then the last test was the test of agreement. Does the book agree doctrinally with the teachings of known canonical books? So some might look at the Word of God and say, Hey, pastor, I, I can show you how the Bible contradicts itself. And I said, no, it absolutely does not. Something that you need to understand about God and the way he works and his covenant, that when God started with the Adamic covenant, when he started this covenant with Adam, 
Every covenant that God made after that only builds on top of the previous one. See, the previous covenant still stands. God just builds on top of it. He perfects it all the way up to the new covenant through Jesus Christ. And so you could point to Old Testament scripture and say, well, pastor, but Paul teaches, teaches to not look to the law anymore. And I tell you, everything in here can be explained. There was a time and purpose for everything God has instructed. So while there is progression in the Bible's revelation of doctrine, there is not a contradiction. There's not. So to conclude all that, what we have to decide is we have to accept that if we believe in Jesus Christ, we are accepting that these books have been put to the test, and so we must accept all of it, not just in part. Are you hearing me, church? This is important to establish, and I realize this is more teaching right now and not preaching, but you have to come to the decision that I choose to accept all of it, because I'm telling you, there is a huge conglomerate of people out there that they read something in Scripture, and they say, that speaks to me, it comforts me, I like that. And then they read other parts of Scripture and say, oh, don't like that. I don't like that. You know what? I'll just never read those things. And then they might even decide, you know, I just choose not to believe in that. I believe in what makes me happy. I believe in what makes me comfortable. Let's just avoid the rest of that altogether. And then once you decide to do that, I want you to think of the domino effect that follows just because you have made that decision. Say you have your children or people that fall underneath your teaching. Maybe you are so dogmatic in this belief that you decide to tell others how you think about Scripture. And they might hear that and be like, well, okay, there are parts that I like that you don't like. There are parts that I agree with that you don't agree with. And you can see the domino effect of when we choose to only believe what we want to believe, what happens is none of us are living in the truth. We are all living under false pretense, right? There are parts of the Bible, they speak to me, and it brings me discomfort. It brings me a fearful judgment. It causes me to believe that God is also vengeful. And then there are times that are comforting where God shows me he loves me. He cares about me. He, he, he pours out his mercy on me if I claim his son, Jesus Christ. And my caution to you is, remember, both of these are working together to develop an imperfect being into God's perfect likeness. Look at truth this way. Truth is life-giving. And the truth can hurt. But we need to choose that I don't want to live under false pretenses in my life. I don't want to just abide by things that make me comfortable. I want to live by the very word of God. And so I accept it all. And when you choose to do that, what's going to happen is it's going to bring you life. 
And it causes you then to change to become more like God. You see, those times where the word of God hurts and it's sharp and it's pointed, what you don't realize it's doing, it's piercing between that flesh that you have. It's hitting right at your heart. It is attacking, it is piercing your very soul. You know, God's word, it's an effective tool. But it's only an effective tool in your life if you understand its value in your life. The reality is there are many Christians that you value many different things. For instance, I, I travel all over the world, and I am telling you, I don't know what has happened in this country in the past about 25 years, but People value coffee more than anywhere else I've ever been. I'm not kidding you, man. I don't know what has happened in this country, but Christians value coffee so much that I have seen it. I have seen where the Bible might be sitting on the floor. The coffee cup is sitting on top of the Bible, and it's almost like a statement that I value the whole of this precious, precious, holy coffee cup. How great it is. And we place these value on things, and we display that by our actions. We might verbally say, but pastor, no, 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 you don't understand. I, I value God's word more. Okay, so are you opening up this daily? Because I guarantee, I guarantee you're, you're sipping on that coffee cup daily, right? You're doing those things. And what I'm trying to show you is we display in our life what we truly value. It's obvious to others. And so we have to make the decision. Will I make an effort that this can become more valuable in my life? Do you know, and speaking of coffee, the things that we consume... We consume because we like the taste, right? Or maybe in the case of coffee, you like the effect that it has. It maybe, maybe it wakes you up. Now the Bible, when you consume it, it doesn't always leave you sitting well. And that's the way God intended it. Listen to Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. So you came here today. We are in our spiritual war series, and you are always thinking when you come to these messages, Pastor, I want to hear how to fight the enemy. And I'm telling you, before you can ever fight the enemy, you have to recognize that this is going to pierce you first before it ever attacks your enemy. It's got to cut you down to where you realize in the realm of the things of God, you are nothing. You are nothing. It's him that's all-powerful. The Bible has to pierce your soul first before it can ever be used against anything that stands against you. If God's word hasn't broken you to the point that you realize you're nothing without him, then you're never going to have a chance in spiritual battle. 
You know, the Word of God, it, it does. It breaks us down. It causes us to experience emotions that you and I are not always comfortable with. And you want to know what the problem with that really is? We like comfort. And it is more freeing in our lives to live without disciplines than it is to challenge ourselves. Who says amen? I'd rather live my whole life sitting on the couch watching TV, eating whatever I want. But I know what that leads to in my life. I want to read for you Psalm 119, 105. It says, Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Now that sounds positive. That sounds really affirming. And we can acknowledge that we read that and we say, we want that. But the key in this is, we must do what the Word of God says in order to be led, in order to be guided. So listen to James 1.22. It says, but don't just listen to God's Word. You must do what it says Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. Recently, uh, my youngest son, Gabe, had to start learning to drive. And uh, he's, he's had his permit for well over a year. And he's, he's started driving. And I realized as, we're, we're being, as he's being taught that I have failed my kids as a father. Now, now, hear me out. He, he never wanted to ride a bike. And so I said, okay. But I never got him behind any other motorized vehicle. Think about it. When, when I was a kid, I loved it. If we went golfing, man, I want to drive the golf cart, right? If, if we had a riding lawnmower, man, let me have a piece of that riding lawnmower. I want to drive it around. And he didn't really get that. And so in my mind, I thought that he should be able to naturally do this because he has at least watched me drive for 15 years. And so I'm thinking he should be able to see everything I've done. And with my verbal instruction... It's all going to go perfect. But who knows, church? We do not gain experience until we are the one to get behind the wheel of the car, right? And then once we know what to do and we begin to put it into practice, we know that it is also not going to look pretty. So just because we are told what to do, we don't really get the rhythms of what it's like doing it until we actually start doing it ourselves. I say all that to say this. You can say you know Scripture because you've heard it taught in church. You can say you know Scripture because you've listened to worship music that references it. You can say you know Scripture because of maybe some devotional you're doing. But there is a difference between knowing Scripture and knowing and speaking Scripture. One of the first things that we have to do is we have to live like we know it. 
And the only way you will prove you know Scripture is for your life to be in line with it. So there are going to be patterns of your life that prove that you know what Scripture says. And so it starts by applying what you've read. And when you apply what you've read, it will become obvious to others that are around you. Jesus was warning about false prophets, and he made this statement. I want you to listen to this. This is Matthew 7.20. It says, yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. And so as a result, you will, you, you will have people who can look at you and they will see God in your life when you start doing what Scripture instructs you to do. And what you don't realize is that as you are bringing these disciplines into your life, you are allowing God to transform you. And there is a process of transformation. I want to tell you, I, I'm going to maybe ruffle some old-time traditional feathers with the next thing I'm going to say. You want to know my biggest problem with the Pentecostal movement? We want to live by the emotions at the altar. And we want to live by believing the Holy Spirit can bring impact on our life at once. So we pray it, we believe it, and we hope that's the change that comes into our lives. And so when I was a kid, I looked for these dramatic moments to happen at the altar that were so dramatic, it would set the course of the rest of my life. For instance, if I wanted to stop doing something, if I wanted to stop being tempted, if I wanted to stop sin in my life, I believed that the Holy Spirit was going to impart something on me at the altar and that I was going to walk away changed. And so I hope for this instantaneous change rather than accepting there is this sanctification of God that I need to start following a pattern of obedience in my life and setting disciplines in my life. Church, we need the word of God consistently in our lives. That should have had an amen. And what you don't realize is that when you start consistently adding these disciplines in, there is a subtle change. Maybe others notice it before you ever do. But there is a change in who we are because we are allowing this process of transformation to take place. Romans 12.2 says, do not copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Church, to change the way you think takes time. It doesn't typically happen overnight. I've heard of politicians changing from one party to another. And some people will look at that and think, what happened? It's like something happened completely overnight. But usually if they start justifying their reasons for changing parties, they can list a chain of events, a long time thing of this inner wrestling where they decided to make that change. It is not something, oftentimes when we change, it is not something that happens overnight. It is because we have instructed new disciplines. We have allowed ourselves 
to be challenged in how we think. And there is a God that seeks to renew you into your originally created purpose. And the only way that you are going to accept that, the only way you're going to introduce that into your life is consistent. There's that phone. Wow. Consistently bringing in new disciplines. Amen. The next thing in proving you know Scripture is speaking it out. Who can say amen to that? To speak it out. When you speak out the word of God, check this out, it produces faith in you. Because what you are doing is you are saying, God, I choose to stand on this, I trust in this, and I'm going to speak it out, professing it because I believe it. Romans 10, 17 takes on many different meanings. It says, so faith comes from hearing. That is hearing the good news about Christ. Now this is how we come into the knowledge about who God is. But here's the thing also about speaking it out. Speaking it out needs to be done as a process of accepting it as our own faith. But it also should be done because it shows that we trust in him and we can make requests known to him. Listen to 1 John 5.14. It says, And we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. Now we read scriptures like Luke chapter 12. We read scriptures like Matthew chapter 7 where it instructs us to ask and it will be given. Who says yes, Lord, to that? I know I say yes, Lord. I embrace that. I accept that. But here is the caveat in all this. In 1 John 5, 14, it says, He hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases Him. How are we to know what pleases Him? And can you speak out what pleases Him unless you know the Word of God? That's the only way. And so that is the moment when you can say you've gotten there that this becomes a true weapon. It is when you truly know it. And church, each and every one of us, especially in our immaturity, we need to learn how to fight. Can I get an amen there? We need to learn how to fight. We need to know how to stand against the devil. And it says in Ephesians 6.13, we need to stand firm against the wicked, wily schemes of the devil. And you can't do that without knowing the word of God. Now, first off, I'd like to say, as far as fighting goes, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I'll save all the fighting illustrations for Pastor Morris talking about his wrestling days. <laughs> I, I, I was in one fight in grade school growing up. One fight. And what happened was I, was I was a crossing guard. I was one of those kids. And I looked up toward the school, and there's my brother. He's in third grade at the time. And a kid that is in my grade took off a leather glove that he had and smacked my brother across the face with it. And I'm like, it's go time. And so I approached 
this bully, this guy who had always been after me and now he's after my brother. His name was Jake. And I entered into a fight that I was not going to win. And thank God, a teacher saw us and broke it up relative, relatively quickly. Or I would have been going to the principal's office. I would have been going to the nurse's office. It's just how it would have ended up. And church, what I am telling you, just like that situation, as you choose to get closer to Christ, you make yourself a target of Satan's. You do. Because here's the thing. You, all of a sudden, you become another soul who no longer shares in his fate and his shame. So what happens is he decides that I'm going to come against them in an effort to try and pull them away from who God is. And he does this multiple ways. He does this through deception. You saw him try to manipulate the word of God with Jesus in the wilderness. He did it in the garden. Think about that. Satan also, he, he chooses to attack us. He did it with physical harm when he came against Job. For those who've ever read the book of Job, and then he'll also tempt us with sin as he tried with Christ in the wilderness and failed. But he did it with Judas and succeeded. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You ever watched the habits of a lion going after its prey? I loved watching National Geographic, Discovery Channel when I was growing up, PBS, right? You tune in, what always happens? It's always the one with the limp at the end of the herd, right, that the lion's going after. It's always the young one. It's always the one left behind. But those ones who have the strength, the ones who have had the knowledge, they, they've escaped plenty of times before, usually doesn't get at them. Satan starts with our weakest. So when we as the body of Christ are instructed to pray for other believers, we need to start there. You need to start praying for the youngest of us. And I don't mean the youngest in age. I mean the youngest in faith. I want to read this for you. It's, a, it's Ephesians 6.13. It's not going to be up on the screen, but this is the whole reason. And this is the whole reason for this series. It says, Therefore put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Verse 14, the first three words are, stand your ground. One of my favorite movies growing up was The Karate Kid. Loved The Karate Kid. Man, here's a kid that's just getting the snot beat out of him left and right. And he just wants to learn how to fight, right? He wants to learn how to take care of his, his enemies, his bullies. And so he's wanting the tools to basically be able to go up and just 
smack him across the head and show him who's in charge. But his instructor, Mr. Miyagi, do you remember what he teaches? Stay in your circle. Don't move out of it. Don't go on the offensive. Stay in your defensive position. Wait for your enemy to come to you. Here's another thing that I see wrong with us as believers. So often we think, man, I am going to take the fight to Satan. I'm going to take the fight to Satan and I'm going to show him who's boss. I would tell you, you've lost the plot. You've lost the plot. Go back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Set your eyes on the things above. Keep your eyes fixed on the things above. This tool that we have, it's very sharp. It's very pointed. It is effective. Use it wisely. Because it has an effect against the enemy, listen to James 4, 7 through 8. It says, so humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands. Everyone say, wash your hands. There's a reason for that. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Raise your hand if you are a sinner in this house this morning. Okay. So if you look around, you're going to find 100% like-minded people. We're all sinners. And where we said in verse 8, wash your hands, do you realize we are washed and purified by the word of God? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 26, listen to what it says. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. So when you and I plead the blood of Jesus Christ over our lives, what we're doing is we're acknowledging we're sinners. And we are entering to God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is why he went on the cross for us. So that that blood, that blood is what allows us to go into the presence of God. But what we're instructed here is once you have gone through that process, once, are you, once you are cleansed from sin, the washing of God's word pours over you to completely clean you and purify you before the Lord. The word of God becomes a tool for complete cleansing in our heart, in our mind. We do that daily. And something that I want you to think about, that without God, without this word spoken, we share in Satan's fate if we're going to try and live without acknowledging who Christ is in our life, if we try and get by without standing on the word, if we're ruled by other things, we are going to share in the exact same fate. And what happens is, because we are without God, we are completely defenseless against the enemy. 
Revelation 1.18 says, I am the living one. This is Jesus speaking. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and the grave. Let me instruct you what Jesus is saying here. When I went to the cross and I died, Satan believed he had the victory. But what I want you to see is now I am alive. I am living. I have taken those keys that he held. I have taken those keys. I have seized them. They are mine. I already have the victory. So look to me, trust in me, and understand the victory already belongs to me. You see, in Christ, you and I have the power to stand up against every scheme the enemy tries to hold against you. But you need to know this word. You need to claim it in your lives. And what you need to do is today is the day you need to decide to commit yourself to Christ. Embrace this life-giving word. Embrace this fight that God already has fought for you. Because he waged war when he sent his son. You need to claim him as your own. You need to dedicate yourself to him. And let me tell you, it's more than what just takes place at this altar. It is you making life-changing decisions. I'm going to read it. I'm going to apply it. I'm going to start doing what it says. The things I do that stand contrary to God's word. I'm going to confess it. I'm going to renounce it. I'm going to move away from it. And you're looking for a Holy Spirit moment to be immediately changed. And you know what? The Holy Spirit might impress upon your life. It's time to change. You might come down here. You might come to the altar and you might feel the Spirit of God resonating in your heart. You're like, oh, that's so good. But here's the thing. Eventually you're going to get up off your knees. You're going to walk out the door. And then you have a decision to make. Am I going to add these disciplines to my life? Or am I just going to wait on that moment by moment Holy Spirit impact? And I'm going to tell you, God, He's going to say, all right. Let's see if you can obey my word. Here comes a test. What are you going to do? You're going to use the knowledge of what you've been given so far? You're going to stand up against it? Or are you going to give in? Church. Last week we made so clear that you have to know the voice of God. You have to know His voice. His voice in written form. 
Will you look at it as what can give you life? Or are you going to look at it as words on a page? Hoping that God just spiritually downloads everything to you. Church, I'm telling you, if we neglect this, shame on us for thinking he's just going to audibly start speaking. I want you to bow your heads. And you see, I I believe we do need a spiritual moment. We need a moment where, where we acknowledge that we have fallen short of the glory of God. We need to repent. We need to renounce our sin. We need to have a moment of choosing to say, God, I need change. I need your spirit to lead me in this. And he is going to lead you, but he is also going to step back and see, are they going to make the decisions that they need to make? Are they going to make the hard decisions to follow me? And so today we can have our moment our moment to prepare ourselves to stand against the devil because I got news for you there are many who are under attack and there are many in this room that are losing the battle and so what we need to do is to make a decision no more I choose to live my life rightly in obedience If I could have the prayer team come forward right now. If you're on our prayer team. I want us to stand up and sing that song, Greater You, Lord. And I want us to focus on the Spirit of God right now. Because, see, I believe the Holy Spirit is dealing with hearts this morning. And I encourage you to respond to the nudges of the Holy Spirit. These people are up here. They want to pray with you. They want to stand in agreement with you. You can't tell them anything that they're going to be tempted to go to tell someone else. They're going to rejoice with you when you confess and you're drawing your heart unto the Lord. They're going to respect what you're doing. And so trust that these people, they've they've gone through training. They've come to the place where all they care about is people drawing closer to God. And I encourage you to embrace that. Right now, what I want you to do is I want you to stand. We're going to sing that song. And if you're feeling led to respond, I I ask that you just find someone up here at the altar to pray with.